0: Welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. Today's episode is part two of our conversation on election law reform in Pennsylvania. If you haven't listened to part one, there's a link in the show notes. Please take a moment to check it out. Today. We're returning to our discussion with Yvonne Hirsch, who is the project manager for the Election Law Advisory Board, or ELAB. So let's dive right back into our discussion. So Yvonne, was there one topic area that the board felt was the most pressing amongst all of the issues that you guys looked at? Last
1: year, our sole recommendation in the report dealt with pre-canvassing, and A lot of our board members are election officials or county government officials, and they all feel very strongly that pre-canvassing is an important issue. Uh, That's not to say the entire board is in accord with that, but certainly the majority of our membership and the county officials are really concerned about being permitted to do some meaningful pre-canvassing, and by meaningful, I mean more than, say, 12 hours or some short-term solution like that. The concept of pre-canvassing really applies to absentee and mail-in ballots, and in essence, what it does is allow the county officials to start opening and counting those ballots before election day. So that when you get to election day, they can be scanned and counted and totaled with the in-person voting so that hopefully by the end of election day or certainly by the next morning, you can have all your votes counted. Because one of the concerns that came out of 2020 was how much time it was taking to count mail-in ballots because you weren't allowed to start counting them until election day. And the volume of mail-in ballots that came in, in large part triggered by the pandemic, was overwhelming. And it took multiple jurisdictions, multiple days to be able to count all of those. And that's one of the things where we looked at other states. We looked to see how other states were doing pre-canvassing and what they were doing with that. Some of them go back as much as two weeks before election day, a week before, four to five days before seems to be one of the more common areas, but it allows you to get started early counting all those paper ballots that you've received in the mail.
0: Yvonne, quick question. Is pre-canvassing something that's decided by the state or is it actually decided by the county? The timeframe, when you say some people were doing certain timeframes and others doing certain timeframes, who was deciding on that?
1: The timeframes are set by state statute.
0: The individual counties were taking more time
1: just because of the population of the county, the volume of mail-in ballots they received. In some counties, a lot of people use mail-in ballots. In others, not so many. A smaller county might have everything counted on Election Day. But some of the bigger counties, I think Philadelphia took like a week to get them all counted But no, the actual time that you can start counting is set by state statute. That's one of the things, if I can digress a little bit, to talk about the new funding for elections that just passed the legislature this summer that would establish the Election Integrity Grant Program. That's the legislation that gives $45 million in grant money available to the counties to use for elections. But one of the requirements of that is that you can pre-canvas beginning at 7 a.m. on election day, which is, I would not call a generous amount of time, but it says you can start then, but then you must continue without interruption until you're done counting them all. That's going to be a question of whether or not counties are willing to make that commitment to have the staff and have the ability to start counting at 7 a.m. on election day and on the mail-in and absentee ballots, they still can't start counting in-person voting until 8 p.m. that night. But the expectation is you will work through the night, you will work through the next day until you have a number. I think the purpose of that is to try to address the issue of people wanting to know who won elections the night of election day or very soon thereafter. Some of the delays contributed to concerns that fraud was occurring, that numbers were being changed because of how long it took to get them. And you also had precincts would be reporting their in-person voting that night because it's basically hit a button on the machine and, and you can do it. And it would show a candidate ahead in the voting. But by the time they got done counting all the absentee and mail-in ballots, the opponent had pulled ahead in the numbers. So people went to bed Tuesday night thinking candidate A won the election. And three days later, candidate B is announced as the winner. And that caused a lot of concern that impropriety
2: had occurred. Yvonne, how would stricter voter ID requirements be reconciled with mail-in and absentee balloting? Voter identification
1: is an issue in progress. Our recommendation in this report is simply to clean up unconstitutional language in the statute. We had a voter ID statute enacted several years ago. It was struck down as unconstitutional. Like the incarcerated individuals, the old voter identification is still on the records. Part of our assignment is to clean up those obsolete laws. So we wrote amendments that would clean that existing voter identification law that is unconstitutional out of the statute. Where we're going next with that, because that is one of the topics we want to address moving forward, is a lot of people seem to want to have a form of voter identification. The issue then comes down to what is acceptable identification. And that's where we get into the weeds because there are concerns that especially people living below the poverty level are not going to have all the identification and access to identification that other people might have. And so the concern is not disenfranchising people who can't produce the kind of identification that's on your voter identification list. What we've run into and what we are going to be trying to nail down moving forward is what is a comprehensive enough list of acceptable identification that you can meaningfully verify that the person who showed up to vote is that person but also not disenfranchise people who may not have access to that entire list. So that's gonna come into play more with the absentee and mail-in ballots with the original voter registration. When you go, and we don't have definitive proposals for that yet. With the voter registration, whatever kind of identification, proof of eligibility to vote you've presented, I believe the process right now when you apply for absentee and mail-in ballot is you have certain items that you can submit, your driver's license number, your social security number that you can submit as proof of your identification to get the mail-in or absentee ballot. But a lot of that is still really open for debate because before we can do anything more specific about how you do it, we have to agree on what's acceptable identification and what is going to ensure that everybody who wants to vote has the ability to vote. So that's kind of where we are on that.
2: Yvonne, based on the eLab conversations, that preparing for elections and knowing what to do is as difficult, if not more difficult, than running the election day itself. Is there a standardized training curriculum for election officials in Pennsylvania that that they can rely on to essentially know how to do their jobs?
1: The short answer is no. One of our recommendations is that the statewide associations of election officials and the County Commissioners Association work with the Department of State to produce some guidelines for election officials. There is no standardized training For election directors, we had, I believe it was over 20 different election directors resign, quit, retire after 2020, and new people took their place. And some of those people are coming from positions where they had no exposure to working on elections at all and have had to come in and learn from day one how to operate the system now, that's not to say the Department of State doesn't have guidance that you can access and you can ask for help, but also some of it is the institutional knowledge that you lost when you lost these people who've been doing elections for 20, 30 years and already know how to do all those things. So you bring in a lot of new people who need to even just have a timeline laid out for them on, you need to do this first, you need to do that first. So the Department of State has helped people with that, but there's no formalized specific training for that. And then within the counties, the judges of election, the inspectors, the poll workers, the counties provide training for them and workers are encouraged to attend it. I don't believe they're mandated to attend it. And most of them get paid about $25 $25 to come to the training session, which is generally two or three hours. And usually it's offered a couple of different days, daytime, evening to try to get people in. Generally, they do go over you know, how the voting system works, what the different positions on election day at the precinct, what their responsibilities are. So it's available, but there's no standard and there's no mandatory requirement. So one of the things that we did recommend is that these two interest groups and Department of State work together and produce some really good guidance for these election directors to be able to run elections efficiently. Because yes, there's an awful lot leading up to election day. Even finding poll workers and then getting the training in and getting everything lined up and getting your ballots printed and all of those kind of things that happen long before you open the doors on election day. And then on election day, the county election board spends the day basically putting out fires because they're getting calls from judges of elections. This person isn't in our poll book. So are they really registered? Can you verify those kind of things? Or, you know, the equipment isn't working or one of our machines is down. So they're dealing with all of that, making the day function so that they're really not, able to do a lot of preparatory work on that day. It all has to be done ahead of time.
0: Yvonne, earlier you'd mentioned voter ID as a topic that'll come up in next year's report. Can you give us any other hints as to where eLab is headed for the next report?
1: We are currently attempting to schedule our first meeting of the new fiscal year and our intent is to dedicate that to mail-in ballots. And that is going to be as many aspects of the topic as we can cover. I don't anticipate that we're gonna do it all in one meeting, but that's going to be our, our primary focus and drop boxes will be part of that. And the reason why we didn't put this in last year's report, is because there's ongoing litigation as to whether or not mail-in ballots are even constitutional. And so we waited. We were expecting a decision on it late May, early June. The decision hasn't come down yet. From my perspective, not trying to make any proposals before or during the primary was not ideal, but it probably made sense if we were going to have an opinion come out in a few weeks. So we put it on hold. And we said we would address it over the summer, expecting to have an opinion on the constitutionality. But we still don't have an opinion. As staff, we're not comfortable just not weighing in any longer with the advisory board on some suggestions to improve the mail-in ballot process before the general election. And we're, we're going into that knowing that we may come up with some fabulous suggestions with the board, and then the PA Supreme Court may issue their ruling and say, nope, sorry, mail-in ballots are unconstitutional, and everything we will have done is moot. But at this point, inaction seems like not enough that we should at least put some proposals out there. And even if it is found unconstitutional, if the General Assembly decides to try to enact something that would meet the constitutional objections, then we can at least have some proposals out there that they could look at and say, oh, well, maybe this will work as we try to draft new legislation. It's a huge issue, but we're hoping to meet the end of August. And um, we've done a lot of research Um, in preparation. So we're hoping we can have that meeting dedicated to that and get some agreement and some perhaps not in perfect statutory language, because we kind of have to do that on our own and prepare it for them, but to get some consensus from the board on, yes, with drop boxes, there should be X, Y, and Z that occur and be able to make some recommendations like that.
2: Do you want to make a clarification about the constitutionality of the absentee ballots? Because some are constitutional because they're in the Constitution. Like it's the no excuse absentee ballots that are.
1: Yeah, actually, the distinction is absentee ballots are the ones that are specifically identified in the Constitution and have been allowed in Pennsylvania for generations the newly enacted mail in ballots are the ones whose constitutionality is being questioned that's not a, a a bad point to make because the absentee ballots aren't being challenged it's the mail in ballots themselves absentees even have their own separate line of provisions in the election code and there are some different things that you can do with absentee ballots with delivery of them and things like that, that are not the same as the mail-in ballots. And the absentee ballots really aren't in any kind of danger. If you meet any of those qualifications, like your college kid in another state would still be able to get an absentee ballot, no matter how the court ruled on the mail-in ballots, it's it's the mail-in ballots that are in jeopardy.
2: But I guess there could be some confusion because absentee ballots are generally mailed in, I guess, unless somebody were to say, oh, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to deliver it early or something. Right, right.
1: Now, when that is the confusion, because and a lot of the media conflates the terms, because what our new Act 77 ballots are no-excuse mail-in ballots. Whereas the true absentee ballots are you're voting because you're absent from your polling place, either because of illness or business or travel, but that you can't physically be at your polling place. You're going to be absent, so you get an absentee ballot. But the no-excuse mail-in ones are the ones that are in jeopardy.
2: And I, and I think some of those absentee ballots were had been ruled unconstitutional in the past until they were rolled into the Constitution. I think, wasn't it during the Civil War, soldiers were away and they couldn't vote? So there was this idea that, well, they can vote by absentee ballot, which was then later found to be unconstitutional because the Constitution didn't provide for Civil War soldiers to be allowed to vote absentee. So that got included in the Constitution subsequently to that.
1: Yeah, it was right around the turn of the 20th century that one of the cases on the constitutionality of absentee ballots occurred and is actually cited by the Commonwealth Court judge who wrote the opinion in the current case that says no-excuse mail-in ballots are unconstitutional. They use that historical story and those cases to justify the finding that the current mail-in ballots were also unconstitutional. But then it's been the state appealed and we're waiting to hear what the PA Supreme Court has to say. The other issue is going to be coming into voter identification and trying to see if we can't, find that middle ground that will allow voter identification but won't cut people out of the process. So that's going to be the second issue we look at. Um, I don't really have a third issue lined up yet, but I have a feeling those two are going to um, keep us busy into the winter. And if it looks like we're starting to run out of things to talk about, there's plenty more on the list that we can pull up and go at. But but to start out with, yeah, we're going to look at, at mail-in and absentee ballots and then voter identification, both very hot topics and uh, just trying to stay abreast of what's going on with all of them is, is a challenge for staff. But
0: it's cool. That's what we do. Since this episode was recorded in June, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has issued their opinion in the Doug McClinko versus Commonwealth of Pennsylvania case. They have upheld the constitutionality of mail-in ballots. The task remains to legislatively address areas of the statute that are ambiguous or subject to dispute. The ELAB hopes to recommend some proposed amendments for the General Assembly to consider in the near future. Well, thank you so much, Yvonne, for joining us, for giving us a little bit of a window into what you guys are going to be looking at next.
1: Thank you. It's always fun to talk about my projects.
0: If you're listening and you're interested in looking at more detail about what Yvonne was talking about with state election law, please take a look at the link in our show notes to our website. You'll find the most recent report that Yvonne and the other staffers put out as well as last year's report. The music for our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful day.